Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with reporter and author Humphrey Hawksley, whose political thriller, Man on Ice, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Humphrey. Good afternoon, Lenny. Would you start us off with an excerpt from your book, please? Yes, I, I can. This is uh, the, the, the book is based uh, on the in the Bering Strait on the border between uh, Alaska and Russia, where there are two islands. There's the Russian island of Big Diomede and the American island of Little Diomede, and they're barely two miles apart. And I was up there a couple of years ago researching the book, uh, which is where I got the setting from. And in this excerpt, what happens is that the Russians come over uh, on the eve of the presidential inauguration and and try to take that island. And Ray Kozena, who is of the Eskimo Scouts and comes from that island, the Eskimo Scouts is a unit within the Alaska National Guard, and he's there at the time. He breaks away from the main unit and works out how he can try to stop at this intrusion. He gets to the top of the island and the and comes across a, a Russian unit that he has to he has to get rid of essentially so that he continue he can continue across the, the ice on his journey. And this excerpt is just after he's had that battle. With a clockwise turn, Rake plunged the knife downwards, sliding it under the soldier's flak jacket and up through the ribcage. The body arched and the grip fell away. His face contorted in pain. As Rake pushed harder and the blade cut through his lungs and other vital organs towards his heart. Blood bubbled from the man's nostrils and mouth and froze. The body went limp. Rake sealed his own mask but found himself tearing off the soldier's goggles. He wanted to see the whole face to show respect. The soldier was brave and rough, but he was a child, like the first one he killed in the school with the poster boy face. They sent them out so young, and Rake hated them for it. He put the boy's radio and phone into his bag. He went back to the other corpses and took all their phones. They would be useful because it was safer to use a message from a civilian phone than an open channel on a military radio. They were in protective cases to preserve battery life. Rake loaded up the sled. He divided weapons, food, and equipment into six separate packs. Even if he lost five in the descent, he would have one pack with which to keep going. He lashed them down. He kept out the night vision binoculars to look over toward Big Diomede. Clear weather and sturdy lenses would allow him to spot dangerous open channels where seawater still ran. He read the dark and light patches where the sea ice would be strong enough to cross. He was looking for something else too, which he saw as the moon emerged from behind a leaden cloud, its light falling like a lamp flickering on the ice. Midway between the two islands, there was a packed and hard track, not yet covered by the new fall of snow. It ended against a tall lump of ice. He thought he saw a ruffle of shadow against the whiteness. It could have been his eyes playing tricks, but he imagined Nikita Took down there watching. A man like Took could wait like an animal unseen for hours, even days, nursing his hatred of his half-brother and his mission to kill. If he were Took, he would hide out between the two islands where he could see everything. And while Took was out there, Rake would not be able to get across. Thank you, Humphrey. 
could you start off by uh, telling us a little bit about where you got the idea for the plot from? Uh, well, I was uh, I like borders and remote places, and I was looking for a a new original setting for a thriller, essentially, and as a reporter, a new original setting to report from. And I'd always heard Sarah Palin say that uh, she or Alaskan could see Russia from their backyard and basically getting mocked for it. Uh, but then I got out the atlas and I saw that actually there were these two islands that uh, were, as I said, you know, barely two miles apart. So I planned a trip out there with a photographer and camera person. And we went out and you have to go to Nome in Alaska. And then be, it's a sort of chartered a helicopter that goes out there. And I, w I planned to stay there originally 36 hours when it came back. But the weather dropped and it got foggy and I was there for more than a week. Uh, and I lived on the island of Little Diomede uh, for a week there. And there were 80 people lived there. What amazed me more than anything, I think, was that this was the U.S.-Russian border. And particularly with all the, 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 the stuff going on with Russia at the moment, uh, you would think that this border would be fairly sort of well-pleased. But there was nothing there. There was no flag on the Russian side, no flag on the American side. There was no border posts. There was just two miles of water between the two. So you get up every morning and you would look directly at this Russian island. Through a telescope, you could actually make out the Russian watch posts. And occasionally a Russian helicopter would come in the side to the helicopter base that they've got out of view on the other side. And I thought, okay, so supposing the Russians decided just to come onto this island at any time, what would happen? How would America react? And that was the setting that I did for it. And then I thought, well, supposing they came just as there was going to be an uh, inauguration of a new president, because foreign powers often test new presidents when they come in. China does it all the time out in Asia. Russia often does it. So I put those two together as a sort of backdrop for the novel. And when I was researching it in, in Washington, other places, I asked people what would happen. And it was it was quite interesting. Half of them, and these were people that sort of worked in Congress and, and around the presidency and that, half of them said, oh, well, we'd just let them have it. And the other half of them said, no, we'd have to get them out within 24 hours. And what would you say the hardest part of writing the book was? I think, I think it's with any thriller is patching it all together. Um, how much... Uh, you know, how much do you explain about the Eskimo culture? How much do you explain about the Russian-U.S. relationship or about a presidential inauguration and keep it going as fast and fast as possible? Um, I think when you're, you're writing a, a thriller about something that is familiar, say you're doing the European-Russian border, which has been going throughout the Cold War or something, Ukraine or something that people know about. You've got a soap opera that, that, that is, has a familiarity about it. But when you take people to a completely new area, you want to draw them into that area, but you don't want to bore them with detail. And I think I found that quite tricky. Uh, and, and, and thank you to my editors for telling me uh, when to speed it up or when to perhaps put a little bit more information in. How real do you think a conflict between the U.S. and Russia is of the kind that you describe? I think it's a tricky one to say. I mean, um, you can always say, well, this is never going to happen. But then, 
you know, would we ever have thought that Russia would have walked into Ukraine or that it would have happened and nobody would have batted an eyelid? Uh, we would uh, so and and at the, and we've had recently over here in Britain, we've had uh, two or a former Russian intelligence agent being poisoned and nearly killed with a nerve agent. Uh, so you would think, well, hold on, that's a little bit far fetched. And then if, if you go back to the, the States, look at the presidency of Donald Trump or indeed what's happening as we're speaking now on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, you know, fiction and, and, and fact are strange bedfellows, aren't they? So I think as long as you can base it in some sort of credibility there that, you know, the, you know, the US and Russia are, are on a hostile path at the moment. They are testing each other wherever they, you know, wherever things happen. And this is essentially an unpleased, uh, un, fairly unknown uh, border and situation. And when you look at when you when you look at the or, or, or talk to the people that are involved in that, particularly, say, Senator Dan Sullivan is is talking all the time about how the U.S. must build up and, and get ready for building up its defenses in the Arctic. Uh, and at the moment, there isn't much up there, whereas the Russians are building them all the time. There are new military bases up there. There are new submarines deployed there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there, which a, a lot of people in Washington are saying, why aren't we responding to this? And they're not responding to it. One of the images that I had on Little Diomede is there's a sort of broken down uh, shed, basically, that used to be the lookout place for the Alaska National Guard. Well, in the early 90s, just after the Berlin Wall had come down, they were removed from there. So there's actually no government presence on that island at all there. There's no police, no state troopers, no National Guard. So your primary experiences as a foreign correspondent for the BBC, and in that work, you've exposed practices and trends internationally that the average citizen would know nothing about. And I'll get to some specifics of that in a moment. But could you talk a little bit about what your goal is in writing thrillers uh, such as Man on Ice or your future history books? Um, yes, I've done. Uh, I, I think as a as a reporter, you will go into a situation, uh, say the invasion of Iraq or Syria or something like that, and you will do the report of the day, um, however dreadful or surprising it might be. But at the back of my mind, and I think many of my colleagues, there's always a thought about what does this mean? What's going to happen five or 10 years from now? What are all the underlying currents that we don't have the time uh, in our news cycle to report and get people to understand? Uh, and that is, I think, is where I run my fiction and nonfiction alongside each other. Uh, so when I went out to the Bering Strait and, and the US-Alaskan border, I uh, I did a number of reports for the BBC and some other uh, publications on it. Uh, but then the, I kept thinking, well, you know, let's play this one out. What would happen if this did happen? How vulnerable is is the U.S. during an acrimonious transition, which this was written before Trump came in. But, uh, you know, you have had transitions where the two teams don't really talk to each other. What are the layers of power there? Uh, that 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 uh, seamlessly move on from January the 20th to January the 21st, and what layers of power change, uh, and how vulnerable is is the U.S. or the West generally then at that particular stage? 
and, and the other element that I was looking into is 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 Putin himself. Although this is a sort of post-Putin, because in case he he didn't survive the publication of the book, but we demonize Putin as one man. But of course, he has numerous. Uh, acrimonious agencies that that are at each other's throats all the time, and he, that he has to keep all of those people uh, settled and happy. So he's not necessarily in control of what goes on. So no, I appreciate that, and it, I like the way that you you link what you're trying to do with your fiction. If I can just turn for a little bit to your your reporting work and just uh, touch upon some of the highlights of your career. Uh, I guess I would call them highlights, but certainly notable uh, notable events. Can you talk a little bit about why you were expelled from Sri Lanka? Uh, that was, yes, that was at the height of the Tamil civil war. Now in Sri Lanka, which is a, a sort of teardrop, they say, on the on the bottom of India, is divided between the Buddhist singular and the Tamil uh, communities. And the Tamils were fighting for their own homeland. They're up in the north of Sri Lanka. And at the time that I was there, the Sinhalese Buddhist government was carrying out the most dreadful atrocities against the Tamils. They were walking into villages and killing everybody there and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And the government didn't like me exposing that on the BBC. Uh, so they, uh, one morning I woke up, went down for, I was living in a hotel, went down there and there were two guys from the immigration department telling me that uh, they were going to walk me to the airport or drive me to the airport. Um, it was a strange expulsion really, because I said, well, you can't do that because I'm having dinner with your boss. There was another minister tonight. So that might put egg on your face. So they went into a huddle and I actually left two days later. Um, and went back slight after that and have covered that ever since. Of course, what's interesting there is that that in the intervening years, the Tamil Tigers themselves became the complete monsters. Uh, so they, as a terror group, were the repressed uh, people that were doing the uprising that had our sympathy when I was there. But they were the people that basically invented the suicide vest. They invented, uh, they blew up airplanes. They trained child soldiers. They had cult terror groups and that sort of thing. And eventually they were they, they were defeated about, uh, about in 2009, 10 years ago. Uh, but I've always kept that in my mind as, as a group when you look at the people that we support in these uprisings of what happens as they develop more and more uh, and the hubris sets in and they turn from being the, the vulnerable victim to the unassailable monster. And what were the circumstances that led to your being arrested in Serbia? Uh, that was a that was a day. Uh, was it a day? Yes, it was a day long arrest. And that was quite a, a you know, looking back on it is that when you uh, when you have these uh, I mean, the, the Yugoslavia was this one country that you would drive through as, say, if you know, you were driving from New York up to Connecticut, up to Maine or whatever, and you just drive the roads. And the odd sign says there's a state that, but you just drive through. Now, if suddenly uh, it breaks up and there's all these different countries and the New Yorkers and the Connecticutans and, and, and they all become these different groups, you get these different things. So the, the driver that we had was essentially taking the motorway from Podgorica, which is now in Montenegro, up towards somewhere else. I can't remember the name of the town now. And she just went along the motorway, forgetting that that motorway cut through a state that was actually under the enemy's control. So we were flagged down at gunpoint. 
and hauled into a place accused of being spies. It was quite tricky for a couple of hours because they brought in a car to take us up to Belgrade. And we knew that once we'd gone up to Belgrade, uh, we would be locked up for the duration of the war. This was back in the late 90s. Um, but she was she and the fixer were friends. and They knew people who knew people. And they managed to sort of charm our way out of there, which is what has happened. So I think we were let go around midnight and drove back through the right roads, <laughs> making sure we stayed on the right side of the roadblocks. So, I mean, you're able to speak about it uh, calmly and with a little bit of a laugh now, but what was it like at the time? Well, when you're in those situations, the um, the, the best thing in, in that situation, when you're sort of in the room and the fans are going and the you know, and they're all talking language to understand and the phones are ringing and you know there's stuff going on and they've got your passports and and they've got you in separate rooms so you can't sort of leave because you're leaving your colleagues behind. It's just to sit it out. I happen to have a paperback with me at the time. I think it, I think it was Day of the Jackal, actually. And I just sat reading the Day of the Jackal or pretending to read it because the calmer you show you are or the less fear you show to your captors, the more they sort of respect you and know they're not necessarily going to get the reaction out of you that they want. And I left it, uh, and another sort of trick is that we had two very good fixers, we call them in our trade, the driver and, and her friend, two, two young women. And they, they basically worked the captors, uh, and we just let them do that. Uh, a big mistake to make in that thing is to sort of actually speak or or let them see any part of your character uh we were just sort of lumps of of uh, british uh the british enemy and these were sort of serbian uh, montenegrins chatting amongst themselves until they struck a deal so pretty amazing you were able to have such equanimity at the time uh just want to touch on uh one other part of your your career uh you were involved or you you may have been one of the leaders i i wasn't so clear on the exact details in campaigning against uh, the chocolate industries using enslaved child workers. Uh, yes, that was um, that was a story that I bumped into. Uh, it was around uh, 2000. It was before 9-11, I remember. And I was doing another story um, and I was in the Ivory Coast, which makes the most cocoa, makes about 50 percent of the world's cocoa, which makes our chocolate. And we were driving through and I kept seeing these children with baskets on their heads and machetes in their hands. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? And it turned out that um, the chocolate industry, essentially, and this is where the big companies, uh, the big sort of household name companies are involved. And I'm not going to name them because there's all sorts of court cases going on at the moment. Uh, They were they, you know, their produce was coming from child labor. Um, and it was right deep in their supply chain, and they were not doing anything about it at all. Uh, So we ran some stories on it, and I kept going back and going to different places uh, where there were children, they were not going to school, they were being trafficked or or sold by their parents to go to to work, and nobody was getting paid. They were getting locked up, they were getting beaten on their feet if they tried to escape, so it was too painful to run. And then they were sent out to to, to pick the cocoa uh, during the day in these dreadful sort of hot plantations. Uh, And I just couldn't let it go. Uh, And I was talking to these big companies, and eventually... um, uh, we we talked to a couple of Congress people, um, 
and the, and there was a protocol. You know, it wasn't just me. There were other people cottoned onto it then. Then there was something called the Harkin Engel Protocol that the uh, that the chocolate companies were meant to sign up to to mean that they were going to stop it. And I went back about. Then we had Iraq and everything and 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 that. And I was doing that. But then we went back about five years later or so, and it was still going on. And the chocolate companies had done nothing about it at all of any substance. And from that, I looked at more. We looked at um, uh, we looked at the cotton industry in India, the construction industry in India, and basically, when you're getting your cheap chocolate or your cheap clothes, uh, you know, a lot of it's coming from this this uh, this stuff. And uh, I'm now sort of, um, you know, know everybody that's doing this, um, and there's no easy answer to it. But when I first started, it was a complete blanket denial from these multinationals. And I thought, how can you, you know, get up in the morning, look in the mirror, take your kids to school, drop off, go to the office and all the rest of it, knowing that your swimming pool and your car is coming from, uh, you know, the blood of these blood education lives of these kids. I just, and I still can't let it go. You can probably tell by the way I'm talking, I'm getting angry, so I better stop. No, well, uh, it's it's impressive again to uh, read work by someone who is able to infuse their real life and in your case, you know, hazardous experiences in dangerous parts of the world uh, into into a thriller. So, uh, thank you uh, for your time, Humphrey. Thank you, listeners. The book again is Humphrey Hawksley's Man on Ice, published by Severn House. And please join us again soon for the next PW Litcast. <laughs>